For a long time, it seemed to me that real life was about to begin. But there was always some obstacle in the way. Something had to be got through first. Some unfinished business. Time still to be served. A debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last, it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. Bet Howland. Dare I say it? Happy Valentine's Day. I've chosen a very radical woman to celebrate on this day of L'Amour. Her work was sensual, passionate, erotic, and daring, especially for her time. Her personal life was also steamy and had all the makings of a great novel. In fact, she documented her life and uninhibited sexuality in a diary, which was later published as an edited version in the 1960s and the full version with all of the steamy details and scandals after her death. We are exploring the life of a nice nin. Whether you're celebrating this Valentine's Day as a singlet or a couple, and are looking to indulge in sensual pleasure, I encourage you to listen on. Throw your dreams into space like a kite, and you do not know what it will bring back. A new life, a new friend, a new love, a new country. A nice nin. Before we dive into the subject matter of this episode, I want to tell you the story of how I became a mermaid. Okay, I'm not completely serious. I fully accept that I have two legs and am completely mortal. And I'm not really sure about the millennial trend of loving mermaids and, at the end of the day, can't really be bothered with finding out how mermaids and unicorns made a comeback. Let's pause for a moment and let that sentence sink in. Mermaids and unicorns, a comeback? Insert massive eye roll and let's move forward. For those of you that don't know, I've been teaching the Pilates method of movement for years and years. See episode two. One evening, I was on Pinterest, scrolling through the feed, looking for pics to put on a vision board when I saw it. A gray t-shirt with a seashell and pink and turquoise swirly writing that said, maybe I'm a mermaid. I don't know why I thought this t-shirt was the funniest thing ever. I literally still think it's hilarious. Like, I'm not going to close any doors on this humanity thing, and there is the slight chance that maybe I'm a mermaid, right? Okay, maybe you had to be there. Short story long, I went to teach Pilates class to my regular handful of women, and I mentioned this t-shirt and how stupid yet equally hilarious it was. I brought up the possibility that we too might be mermaids. I mean, maybe. Wouldn't want to rule it out, you know? Anyway, I started a private Facebook group for a more streamlined communication amongst the small but mighty Pilates community I was building, and once again, as a joke, labeled the group, maybe we're mermaids. And from then on, it stuck. Classes became mermaid classes, and to this day, I call these women my mermaids. Now, all of this would be total eye roll and completely insignificant, except for this one piece of the story. I ran into this quote by Anais Nin. I must be a mermaid, Rango. I have no fear of depths and a great fear of shallow living. Oh my gosh, I am a mermaid. 
This short quote completely encompassed the disconnect I felt for years with the general population, and Ice totally gets it. While people are so focused on everyday dramas and upcoming baby showers and he said, she said conversations and climbing the ladder and houses and husbands, I wanted to feel the depths of music and emotion, explore the soul's journey, talk about the impermanence of life and the unimportance of the accumulation of things. I wanted to talk about the parts of the human experience that deeply tug at the heartstrings of my fellow human souls. In fact, it's hard for me to feel close to people unless we can go into these depths together. A conversation about the latest show on Netflix just doesn't cut it. And while I can put on a smile, listen, and engage, it leaves me bored and unfulfilled. Anyway, I didn't know much about Anaisnin, and upon further research, I feel like I totally get her. Actually, I get like 90% of her. While I really want to be open-minded and appreciate the radical life true to herself that she lived, there are some elements to her story that are very hard to get past, some of which we'll chat about today. Because Anais documented most of her life and then had it published, there is so much to share. So I'm going to focus on a few elements of her life that seem to play pivotal roles and also just fascinating in general. So, we begin. Born February 21st, 1903, in France, to Cuban composer Joaquin Nin and Rosa Cumel. At the age of 10, her father abandoned her, her mother, and two brothers to run off with one of his young and beautiful piano students. This would have a massive impact on Anais's life. I mean, of course, right? This would impact any small child's life, but the ways in which this story plays out is, number one, unimaginable, and also what made Anais one of a kind. At the age of 11, so right after her father left, her mother, brothers, and herself migrated to New York. Imagine, at 11 years old, prepubescent Nin, starting from scratch in a new country, with a new language, a new school, a new family dynamic— it was on the ship to New York in 1914 that Nin started to write. She wrote letters to her father asking him to come back to the family, trying to persuade him with the allure of America and New York in order to get him back. Nin dropped out of school at the age of 16 in order to work as an artist's model. In 1923, Anais married Ian Hugo, a banker and artist. They were married in Havana and moved to Paris the next year to an apartment she would call the Laboratory of the Soul. Her marriage to Hugo looked very traditional, their sex life unextraordinary. At some point, to break up the monotony of being a banker's wife, she started taking tango and or flamenco lessons and did more than dancing. She writes about a room, basement, or a closet filled with costumes where she would have passionate encounters with the male dancers. This would be one of the many, 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 many infidelities to come in the life and times of Anais Nin. Her insatiable desire for sexual pleasures were awakened when stepping outside of the relationship between her and Hugo and would continue to be the way she experienced the depths of life. The next major player, or players, if you will, was American writer Henry Miller and his wife, June. 
Nin was awestruck by June's beauty and pursued relations with her as well as with Henry Miller. This was not a menage a trois kind of situation, though I wouldn't put it past Nin. Her separate relationships with each of the couple drove them to split. Nin felt a deeper connection to Henry, not just because she was deeply drawn to him physically, but also the fact that he was a writer, as was she. Remember, she had been using writing as a way to make sense of life since first leaving France at the age of 11. Here are a few quotes by Anais Nin about the role of a writer. The role of a writer is not to say what we can all say, but what we are unable to say. You don't write for yourself or for others. You write out of a deep inner necessity. If you are a writer, you have to write, just as you have to breathe. Or if you're a singer, you have to sing. I believe one writes because one has to create a world in which one can live. I could not live in any of the worlds offered to me. The world of my parents, the world of the war, the world of politics. I had to create a world of my own, like a climate, a country, an atmosphere in which I could breathe, reign, and recreate myself when destroyed by living. That, I believe, is the reason for every work of art. While at first she may be identified as Henry's muse, I believe it was after this split of Henry and June that Anais and Henry started to co-create the intensity of Henry Miller's book, Tropic of Cancer. My impression is that this was also the pivotal point where Nin started to identify as a writer, or a professional writer, and not just a banker's wife. Speaking of Nin's husband, Hugo, where was he while all this love triangle stuff was occurring? He was working banker's hours and coming home to his beautiful young wife and living what looked like an ordinary life. On one occasion, Hugo did come across Nin's diary. Remember, she wrote in grave detail daily about her life from the age of 11 until her death. Her diaries bear it all. Hugo read the stories about Miller and her love affair. When confronted, Nin told Hugo that this particular diary was just fantasies. And while he was at work, she went out and purchased a blank journal. In one afternoon, she transferred all of the information, minus her affair with Henry, of course, to the blank journal and showed it to Hugo as proof of her fidelity. This would be one of the more mild untruths that she would tell Hugo. One of the most intriguing and mermaid-like qualities of Nin was her understanding of consciousness and being the witness self. This is also where I'm torn in how to represent this part of her life. Here's a couple more quotes by her. We write to taste life twice, in the moment and in retrospect. I am an excitable person who only understands life lyrically, musically, in whom feelings are much stronger as reason. I am so thirsty for the marvelous that only the marvelous has power over me. Anything I cannot transform into something marvelous, I let go. Reality doesn't impress me. I only believe in intoxication, in ecstasy. And when ordinary life shackles me, I escape one way or another. No more walls. Nin had a deep interest in psychology, 
In fact, she went to two therapists for psychoanalysis, which of course was fairly new to the world, with Freud's work being introduced in the 1890s. It was in 1932 that Nin would visit René Allendy, a French psychoanalyst, and seduce him, as well as Otto Rank, one of Freud's Austrian colleagues, and eventually a lover of Nin's as well. In one documentary, they quoted her as observing that she practiced speeches rather than truths, and she meditated lies the way that other people meditate confessions. She was acutely aware of her behavior. She truly was the doer and the observer in her life. Observations of her work showed that she writes about her sexual encounters as very disconnected, like she's the vessel for the man to experience, not in a victim way, but in a disassociative way. It's truly fascinating. It seems that she prioritized the writing and the documenting of her human experience as her most important duty on this planet. She was just the character in her novel of life. I mentioned earlier that her father leaving and her writing him letters was the beginning of her documenting her life. There is no doubt that her father leaving left deep wounds and perhaps in her partnership with Hugo and her many, 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 many romantic affairs that she was in search for the void that her father left to be filled. Well... This is where her mermaid life takes a turn that I so badly don't want to judge. Um, so I will just report the facts as I understand them. Her father heard what a beautiful woman she had become and started to write her. Eventually, they reconnected and both attracted to each other and in their own narcissistic way attracted to the vision of themselves in each other. It's said that a nice nin and her father had an affair. I mean, she wrote a novel called The House of Incest. So there you go. While we're talking about her deepest, darkest secrets, a nice nin also around this time had a late stage abortion. She writes about it as a stillbirth when in fact it was an abortion that she put off for no particular reason from, again, my understanding. Yet another example of how she was able to separate herself from such a cruel or selfish act. And with that, let's continue on to part two of the life of Anais Nin. In 1939, to escape the war, Hugo and Anais moved to New York. Nin started to publish short stories and her first novels. Her style of writing was more European and involved lots of imagery and fantasy. This was the opposite of what was trending in America, with writers like Hemingway who focused more on realism. This is one of my more favorite things about her. Frustrated with not being published in America, she asked Hugo to fund her own printing press. And so she began to spend 16 hours a day taking the time to publish her writings herself. Totally radical. And on that note, it's time to introduce Rupert Pohl. It was attraction at first sight. They both ended up taking the same elevator to a house party in New York, where they spent the night talking and getting to know each other. This would be the meet-cute of any great rom-com. 
Oh, yeah. Except for the fact that she's still married and living a seemingly normal life with Hugo. Despite that fact, Rupert Pohl, her new love, invites her to take a cross-country road trip. He's relocating to L.A. to become a forester, and he wants her to come with. She eventually goes, and I believe she had to leave the country for her citizenship anyway, so that gave her the easily explainable excuse of why she would be gone for so long from her husband, Hugo. She ends up staying in Mexico for a bit and then reconnects with Rupert in Los Angeles. From her friends' accounts, especially the friends that knew her both with Hugo and Rupert, it seemed like she had a very transactional relationship with Hugo, her first husband. It's the kind of relationship you would expect from two people who married young and didn't have a strong physical connection. There was love, but not passion. With Rupert, it seemed like he really brought her heart to life. He made her feel light and free. All of those feelings she sought out with sex with her many, 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 many partners. She talks about being in love with both of them and not being able to make a choice. She continues bi-coastal relationships for years, lying to each man about her whereabouts for months at a time. She even got her friends in on it. She labeled a small box with index cards in it. The box was labeled lies, and this is how she kept her story straight and her inner circle supporting this charade. In fact, she said it was like she was swinging from a trapeze with her bi-coastal relationships, her second diary being uh, called trapeze. While this is completely bizarre behavior, number one, I found it strange that she never felt remorse about how devastating this must have been to both men. Rupert was featured in one of the documentaries I watched, link will be in the show notes, and he mentions that he pretended to believe the lies she was telling, which in some ways was comforting. The wool wasn't pulled completely over their eyes, and they made the conscious choice not to remove it. Rupert did, however, believe that she divorced Hugo in 1945. Just in case you're tangled in the web of Anais's lies, she did not divorce Hugo and was in fact married to both Hugo and Rupert for the rest of her life as long as they both and the other both should live. (laughs) I think it's time for another Nin quote. You live like this sheltered, in a delicate world, and you believe you are living. Then you read a book, or you take a trip, and you discover that you are not living, that you are hibernating. The symptoms of hibernating are easily detectable. First, restlessness. The second system, when hibernating becomes dangerous and might degenerate into death, absence of pleasure. That is all. It appears like an innocuous illness. Monotony, boredom, death. Millions live like this, or die like this, without knowing it. They work in offices, they drive a car, they picnic with their families, they raise children. And then some shock treatment takes place, a person, a book, a song, and it awakens them and saves them from death. Some never awaken. Towards the end of Anais's life, she got what she wanted— She became a famous and well-known writer. In fact, she had her own subset of groupies called the Ninnies. This was in the 1960s and in the first surge of feminism. 
Her edited published diaries of her free sexuality and wild encounters inspired women in this movement to practice the same. However, she became a controversial figure in the feminist world because, as one feminist called out during a public speaking event, you're not a real feminist, you always needed a man. Anais threw up her arms and walked off the stage. She did not want to be associated with the feminist movement. She was simply living her life. Though with quotes like the following circulating on the interwebs, there is no wonder she's associated with the feminist movement and inspiring artists like Madonna. How wrong is it for a woman to expect the man to build the world she wants? rather than to create it herself. She was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 1974 and passed away in 1977, still married to both men. She left behind numerous novels, short stories, and of course, asked Rupert to print the unedited versions of her diaries. A radical woman indeed, whether you love her or not, she lived life on her own terms. And so we end our exploration of the female erotica writer Anais Nin and one final gift from her to us. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom.